What can miserable Christians sing? That was the question that one Christian speaker, Carl Truman, asked to a variety of audiences. What can miserable Christians sing? It was an honest question, but when Truman asked the question, several times the audience would chuckle in response. Now, I'm sure that they didn't mean to be cruel, um, but they didn't think he was asking a serious question. But he was. It was a genuine question meant to provoke thought. Truman was hoping to point out that sometimes in our worship services and in our Christian lives, more broadly speaking, that we need to make space for sorrow and lament. Grieving is not only dignified and appropriate in Scripture, our Lord Jesus wept, but we are even commanded to weep. So what space do we give for grief in our lives and in our worship? How would you answer that question? What can miserable Christians sing? Well, one answer to that question is Psalm 6. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Psalm, the book of Psalms <clears throat> is in the middle of our Bible, and we're looking at Psalm chapter 6 this evening. Psalm 6 is a rather dark psalm. It's dark in more ways than one but it also shows us how to have hope in the midst of darkness. In one way, quite literally, this is a dark psalm because it presents a nighttime scene. And in fact, Psalms 3 through 6 alternate between morning and evening time. Psalms 3 and 5 are set in the morning, and Psalms 4 and 6 are set in the evening at night. But Psalm 6 is also dark in the sense that the content is sorrowful and heavy. David is oppressed in this psalm, just as he has been in the prior four psalms. Psalm 2 addresses the nations that rage against God and God's anointed king. And then Psalms 3, 4, and 5 are all psalms of David where he records his prayers, his cries to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies. And Psalm 6 is another installation in that theme. This psalm is a lament as David looks to God for hope in the midst of his darkness. So listen as I, I read Psalm chapter 6. To the chief musician Neganoth upon Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. 
Oh Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. Oh, save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Well, the main question that we're going to ask of this psalm is how do we find hope in darkness? How do we find hope in the midst of the great darkness that we face? We're going to try to answer that question by first looking right into the darkness and then turning to look out for hope. So first, let's look into the darkness. When we look at David's circumstances here, we can't help but notice how heavy and severe his circumstances are. The sound of sorrow cannot be ignored. Weeping need not be wailing to arrest our attention. The faintest whimper of a child draws our attention, draws us to them. And if you're talking with someone, and all of a sudden you notice their voice start to quake or their lip quiver, all of a sudden you can't be distracted anymore. You're very focused on what they're saying. The sound of sorrow in this psalm is loud. It's severe and it deserves our attention. So notice how David describes his condition. In verses 2 and 3, we see that he is vexed. He's troubled both in his body and in his soul. In verse 5, it says he's worried for his very life. And his eyes are tired because of his crying in verses 6 and 7. He, he even says that he's, he's flooding his couch with tears. What an image that is. This is deep, deep grief. Did you know that the Bible has words for our deepest grief and pain? It's true that the Bible has many stories of victory, but it also includes stories of agony. And thank God that his word speaks realistically about our pain. Zacchaeus Swine has written so helpfully on this topic, and he says, God has the sound of reality about him when he relates to us in our sorrows and sufferings. He knows firsthand the proximity of our despair. He gives us language and care proportionate to our pains. And I love that word that he uses there, proportionate. God's word doesn't shortchange our grief. 
God doesn't just gloss over hard things, but he speaks and gives it appropriate, proportionate expression. In your deep darkness, use the language that Scripture gives, even this psalm, to express your sorrow to God. Too many speaking in Jesus' name preach a false gospel of earthly happiness and prosperity. You'll find this message hard to avoid. It's on TV, it's on the radio, it's on the internet, it's in the bookstores, from the likes of Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and Kenneth Copeland, just to name a few. And these are, these are false teachers, to be clear, who aren't calling anyone to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. Unfortunately, we in America have exported that false message across the globe to other nations. I was just talking to a former missionary this week who was telling me about an American evangelist who visited the country where he was doing long-term missionary work. And after a few days of preaching with no decisions from the audience, the evangelist grew frustrated. And he said, what's wrong with you people? Don't you know that it's fun to be a Christian? Well, psalms like this one give the lie to that message and speak the truth about our life in a sin-cursed world. This world is full of trouble. And if our master suffered, so will we. While we, not be, while we may not subscribe to these teachers, we have to be careful that we make room for lament and grief in the Christian life. That means that we need to sing songs that express sorrow or longing for the future. It means that we need to listen well to those who weep and who struggle and bear that burden with them. What is the source of David's deep pain in this psalm? Well, he reveals at least two sources in Psalm 6. One of the sources of his pain is his enemies. Uh, we see this throughout the, the psalm. The clearest source of trouble is his enemies. And this is very much in keeping with the themes developed in the first five psalms. These enemies show up in verse 5 when David again mentions that he feels like his life is at stake. People are after him. And then they, his enemies show up again by name in verse 7 where he identifies them as the source of his many tears. And then <clears throat> David turns to address them in verse 8 and anticipates their final judgment in verse 10. But there seems to be another source of pain for David in the opening three verses. And that is the Lord's discipline for David's sin. David begins by asking, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. David here speaks of rebuke and chastening or discipline. And he speaks of God's anger and displeasure. Why open like that? Why begin the psalm in that way? Well, it seems that David interprets his circumstances, interprets his suffering as a rebuke from the Lord. God can have many purposes 
in our troubles. And although we won't always know the reason for our suffering, one possibility that we have to be open to as Christians is the discipline of the Lord. We know that David specifically experienced that on multiple occasions. He experienced the Lord's discipline when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Uriah. And David also experienced the discipline of the Lord when he counted all of his people in the census. Even though discipline is not pleasant, the Lord's discipline is always good. In fact, the Bible says that discipline is one of the ways that God shows his love for us. You'll remember Hebrews 12 says, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening, or the discipline, of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This means that for we who are God's children, he will not rebuke us in anger, or chasten us in hot displeasure. God doesn't lose his temper with us. All his actions toward his children are done in love. This means a couple of things for us in our experience of trouble. It means the possibility and even the need for discipline should make us open to examination, to consider ourselves. We should be a humble people quick to identify and confess sin, even as we see David doing here. We should not be cagey or defensive, but rather we should embody the wisdom from above that is peaceable and teachable and open to reason. To put a fine point on it, times of trouble are a unique opportunity to consider whether we are loving sin more than God. And if you never think this way, if you never even consider that maybe you're in the wrong, then let David be a model for you here. But to be honest, I know so many of you in our church have a tender conscience. You, you don't need a season of trouble to make you consider your sin. Even the good times can be haunted by anxieties that there's some unconfessed sin somewhere in our lives. If that's you, I want to assure you of God's great love. Brothers and sisters, God loves his children. God loves you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Times of trouble are not a sign of his burning wrath against you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even his discipline is not a sign of his anger, but of his love. Friend, if this describes you, focus on your father's love. For every glance you take at your sin, gaze ten times at Jesus, who loves you and gave himself for you. You are being made into his image, and he will complete the good work he began in you. Indeed, this is what David does. He mentions God's displeasure. He doesn't ask that the Lord take away the rebuke, but that it be not done in anger. And then David also looks 
to God's grace. Did you notice this, how he does this? And this, this leads us then to our second point that we're going to transition now to look out of the darkness for hope and see how David does this. This psalm is among the darkest in all of Scripture. But in the midst of this severe and heavy darkness, David finds hope. David finds hope in turning to God. We learn this lesson in the first two words of the psalm. O Lord. So many psalms like this one teach us to take our pain to God in prayer. In the midst of his difficulty, David talks to God. In the midst of distress, Hannah wept to God. When he lost everything, Job cried out to God. In the midst of deep lamentation, Jeremiah expressed his grief in the book we know by that name. In agony on the cross, Jesus called out to his Father. As Christians, we are not called to merely experience and endure difficulty. When we face trouble, we can talk to God about it. This is the first step of faith, simply turning to God. Speaking of darkness, children, if you are afraid of the dark, this is how you can find hope even when it's dark and scary. Turn to God. Talk to God. He hears you and he cares for you. David also finds hope that God hears him when he prays. In verse 9, this is the second source of hope that we find in this chapter. Turning to God is not the same as self-talk, right? This isn't, he's not just hyping himself up. When you pray, you are talking to a person who hears and is responsive to you. And David expresses his confidence in verse 9. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Christian, you can have this confidence too. We are told to cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. We are encouraged to pray like a woman pleading before a judge, like a child who goes to his father to ask for bread. Brothers and sisters, have confidence that when you pray, God hears and he responds to your prayers. It's worth asking, where does that kind of confidence come from? Well, David also finds hope in God's grace. We see this in verses 2 and 4. David's plea in these verses is not grounded in himself. He doesn't uh, reason with God that God should help him because of all the great things David's done for God. He doesn't say, God, I slew Goliath. God, I'm a man after your own heart. God, I'm, I'm patiently waiting for the throne. No, rather, actually, in verse 2, David confesses his weakness. He says, God, I'm weak. And he grounds his request. He, he looks for hope in God's grace. He asks God for grace in verse 2. The word here translated mercy is the word hanan, which is where we get the name Hannah, which is often translated grace. This word means God's undeserved 
favor. David, again, he's not asking based on his own record, but based on God's own kindness and benevolent character. And in verse 4, David appeals to a different sense of God's grace, namely the grace that we find in God's commitment to keep his covenant. We've heard about this in the last couple of sermons in Joshua, God's commitment to keep his promises. And when David asks God to save him for his mercy's sake, there in verse 4, that word mercy is the word hesed, which is the grace and love shown in God's covenant faithfulness. That word is tied to God's covenant love. And we can tell that David has God's covenant faithfulness in mind because of how frequently he addresses God by his covenant name, Yahweh. The name Yahweh is translated as Lord in all capital letters in our English Bibles. And David uses this name five times in the first four verses. This is the name by which Israel knew God as their deliverer. And God had tied this name to all of his promises. To them, the name would have carried similar significance to the way we think of and use the name Jesus, whom we know to be the revelation of God's glory. We know to be our deliverer and the one who, to whom God has tied all of his covenant promises. Friend, what is the hope that you have that God would deliver you and that God would save you? Perhaps you think God is responsive to great faith. Perhaps you doubt that God would save you because maybe you feel like you don't have enough faith. And, and maybe if you had a little bit more, that God would be pleased with you, and God would save you. Friend, God doesn't save people because of their great faith, but because of who they put their faith in. If you're looking for hope, for deliverance, for salvation from sin, then put your hope, put your trust in Jesus. He gave his own life to pay the penalty for our sins. All of God's anger and displeasure for our sins was poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. And now he lives to offer forgiveness for our sins and hope to all who trust in him. Friend, don't put your faith in faith. Put your faith in Jesus. We don't sing amazing faith. We sing amazing grace. It's through Jesus that all of God's grace and favor comes to us. Trust in him and you will be saved. Finally, David finds hope in God's justice at the end of this psalm in verses 8 and 10. In verse 8, David actually turns, he pivots to address his enemies. His enemies are the workers of iniquity that have been mentioned in every psalm up to this one. They are the ungodly who oppose the king. They've arisen against David. They've surrounded him, these psalms say. They mock his name. They want to take his life. But David understands the end of all his enemies. He understands the end that awaits all of God's enemies, all sinners. In verse 10, David says that the tables will be turned. While their oppression caused David to be sore vexed in verse 3, now David knows that their end is that they will be sore vexed. While they cause David shame in Psalm 4, here, he knows that in the end, they will be put to shame. 
And though God's enemies would be comfortable now and mock God's patience, David knows that in the end, shame will come upon them suddenly. Brothers and sisters, God teaches us here to put our hope in his promises for the future. That's what David is doing here. He is declaring to be true what he knows will one day come to pass. Where have you cast your anchor for hope? Too often we look for hope in a better life here and now. We hope that Jesus will give us a spouse or that Jesus will fix our marriage or we hope that Jesus will heal us or we hope that Jesus will give us a job that we want. Friend, it's appropriate to talk to God about all of those things in prayer, and his word has a lot to say that can bring blessing into all of those things. But God doesn't promise to bring relief for every discomfort in this life. In fact, Jesus says that it's hard to follow him. Jesus' followers will suffer as he suffered. We live in a sin-cursed world until Jesus comes back. And only then will every tear be wiped away and every trouble done away with. That is the day where we must anchor our hope. So practically, when you feel the burdens and groaning in this world, set your mind on the day that we all anticipate when Christ returns. Set your mind on things to come, on promises for the future. Look forward to the day of Christ's return. Cultivate a sense of longing and anticipation for that day. Sing songs about eternity and about heaven. Memorize scripture about the world to come. Remind one another of all that we wait for and all that we expect. Spurgeon says this so well when he says, In our Christian pilgrimage, it is well for the most part to be looking forward. Forward lies the crown, and onward is the goal. Whether it be for hope, for joy, for consolation, or for the inspiring of our love, the future must, after all, be the grand object of the eye of faith. The thought of the future may relieve the darkness of the past and the gloom of the present. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. Hush, hush, my doubts. Death is but a narrow stream, and you shall soon have forded it. Time, how short. Eternity, how long. Death, how brief. Immortality, how endless. The road is so, so short. I shall soon be there. This is where David finds hope in the world to come. And it's where we find hope also. In his book on suffering called Embodied Hope, Kelly Capick tells the story of his friend Bob. Bob was an elder in his church, and many who were close to him, his close family and his friends walked through deep suffering. And Bob wrote a poem of lament, 
which is, again, what we see here in Psalm chapter 6. A, a lament, as we see here, just an expression of pain to God, asking for his help. More than one-third of the Psalms are laments. And they're, they're healthy for us individually and for our corporate spiritual life. I want to learn to pray more like this, and I hope you do too. This is Bob's poem called A Spontaneous Lament, which is portrayed as a conversation between Bob and God. And listen for the ways that he expresses his grief and also a sense of longing for the future and how he finds hope there. Why did my daughter's husband break her heart? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? I won't, my son. Why does my wife have to live in pain? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? It would make it easier. It wouldn't, my son. Why do parents have to bury their children? It isn't right. It isn't, little child. Then get rid of death, Father. I am, my son. Why are your people abused, persecuted, and killed? Can't you protect them? I can, little child. Then do something. I did, my son. Why do my parents need to finish their lives in unrelenting misery? How is that merciful? It is, little child. But then I don't understand mercy. You don't, my son. But it all hurts so much sometimes. I know it does, little child. How do you know, Father? I have felt all the pain of sin, my son. Can't you make it all stop? I can, little child. But then do it, Father. I started 2,000 years ago and will finish soon, my son. I believe you, Father. Help my unbelief. I love you, my son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know our grief even when we feel alone at night, when we cry tears that make our eyes tired. God, you know. We thank you that you know and that Jesus is our sympathetic priest. And we thank you for how the Spirit groans and intercedes for us. And we thank you that one day you will make all things right. We thank you that you have made our relationship with you right. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and that we are your children with whom you're pleased. We thank you for your great love for us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to find hope in Christ this week and help us to be patient as we wait for that day to come that we yearn for and that we long for. In Jesus' name.